pray real quick. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your truth, for the worship that we can engage in. Lord, we pray a blessing in your anointing to rest and remain on autumn and our worship team. Lord, I thank you for uh, this series that we're doing. Um, transform us from the inside out, Lord. Um, thank you for this passage of scripture and the, what you've prepared in my heart, Lord, not for my glory or credit to any one of us in the room, but all for your glory, for your kingdom. And Lord, that, that you would uh, at this time make me uh, like a microphone, bringing clear, um, loud and clear truth uh, to your people. In Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. It's a little pop quiz. You guys ready? We're going to do some talkie-talkie, as Pastor Russ put it. Um, how many books are there in the Bible? 66. All right. Pretty good. Pretty nice. Uh, and what would the next question, what would the first book of the Bible be? Genesis. I heard Genesis around. Yeah, Genesis kind of means beginning. Genesis, a new Genesis, a new beginning. Genealogy comes from the same word. Generosity comes from the same word. Genius, things that you're born, a new birth, a new, a new beginning. Uh, what about the last book of the Bible? What is that? Yeah, Esther's on it. She's, a, she's ready for the pop quiz. Revelation. Revelation is also a very important book, right? Um, by the way, Revelation is the only book uh, in Scripture where we really read of the real Jesus. Did you know that? It's the only, that means that Revelation is the book of the Bible that we see the risen Christ in all of his power and all of his glory and all of his wrath and all of his fire and all of his justice and all of his mercy. That's the only place that we really know who the real Jesus is, by the way. Okay. What are the four Gospels? Caesar's on it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah. Luke? John, exactly. Yep, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. Mark was actually the first gospel that was written. And Mark's gospel is really um, the sermons of Peter. That's really what it is. It was written in a hurry because Peter thought Christ was coming or he's going to die soon. And so John Mark is writing quickly. You know how Peter was quick. Peter was very quick to make decisions, quick to do things. And Peter's like, hey, write this down, and, and Mark wrote it and interpreted it and, and all those things. Then you have Matthew, uh, Luke, and John, and that's all part of our New Testament. How about who wrote the majority of the New Testament? Saul? Paul? Some people say Paul. It's generally understood that Paul wrote it, but actually that's incorrect. Incorrect. That people think Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Actually, the person who contributed the most to the New Testament was Luke. Luke. Luke's gospel is the longest gospel, and Luke also wrote Acts, which, was, uh, which is the church history, basically. And those two books make up for more, actually, than any other person who wrote in the New Testament. Interesting enough, Luke was a Gentile and is believed to be the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. He was an outsider, in other words. He didn't fit. And yet God used him to write and contribute the most to the New Testament. Very interesting. He's one of my favorite characters, but we won't get into him very much. Other than that, he was a very careful historian, uh, Luke was. He was very detailed. You get a lot of interesting details in, in Luke's gospel that you won't get in other gospels. He's very specific. 
and he was a very detailed historian. And another detail about Luke was Luke was a medical doctor. He was an MD, all right? So he's educated, and he was a historian, and he was a medical doctor. And you know, Luke, Dr. Luke, only had one patient. He only had one patient. Can you imagine your doctor only having one patient? All right, I don't know how long it takes you to get an appointment with your primary care physician and this, whatever insurance you have, maybe you, you have good access to your doctor, but Luke only had one patient. Partway through his practice, through his medical practice, Dr. Luke decided that he's only gonna focus on one VIP patient. He only took on one important patient partway through his practice because he realized how important this patient, how important this particular person was to history and how important this person was to God. So he dedicated his life and he was a traveling doctor as this person's personal physician. Now, who was that person? Paul. Paul was that person, yeah. Luke was uh, Paul's personal physician, Apostle Paul. And Apostle Paul is the author of this letter to the Christians in Rome, to the believers in Rome. He was that much an important person, and Luke recognized that. And Luke recognized that his call was to make sure that this man, this apostle called by God, was taken care of, and, and can, he did everything he can to give his life, give his work to this person. And Paul was a man of entirely different caliber. He was a brilliant man. By today's standards, Paul would have at least five PhDs. He would have had and done a lot of postdoc stuff beyond even what uh, areas of education and academics could um, provide for him. The capacity of his mind was just far out, a different caliber. And that was even before he met Christ. Before he met Christ, he was this type of person. And then on top of that, Paul became full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit grabbed onto him. We have to remember that Paul spent three years learning directly from the risen Christ. He learned directly from the risen Christ. No other apostle had that sort of revelation, had that sort of time with the risen Savior. And you can read that in Galatians chapter 1. Paul talks a little bit about his time, that he spent time, two to three years, uh, basically in a room in Arabia with the risen Lord, and with the risen Savior. That is remarkable. That is pretty uh, uh, remarkable. And when we kind of, it's a few short verses. We kind of pass over it, but we have to realize, we have to know that this was Paul's time spent. And you can look at that in Galatians chapter 1. Amazing man with an amazing life. There's a book by uh, Gene A. Getz, uh, basically a, a short biography on Paul. You look that up on Amazon if you're interested. It's very easy to read. It's not super hard to, it's very accessible. Um, a, a biography on Paul, 200 pages maybe. It is, it's a fast read, small book too, small pages. It kind of explains a little bit uh, about Paul's life. And Paul was so deep, and his, his revelation was so much higher than anybody else that really none of the church or none of the church leaders could really understand his teaching. They had a lot of trouble understanding what Paul was talking about. They couldn't comprehend the revelation that he received from heaven, from the third heaven, as Paul calls, uh, calls it. They couldn't even understand what Paul meant. What is this thing called grace? 
We don't get it. This is the first time Jesus actually never taught on grace. It is implied in the Gospels, but Paul's the one who introduced what grace is. But people couldn't grasp what is this thing called grace, and they couldn't grasp it for not just a generation, not just two, for centuries. They didn't know what this teaching was. It was beyond their comprehension, something they never heard before. And it was only centuries later, actually fourth century, when St. Augustine helped to explain Paul's teaching on the grace of God. Fourth century, about 350 um, to 430 um, uh, was when St. Augustine came in and his conversion and his help to help us understand what the grace of God was. For centuries, people struggled to understand what Paul was saying. And let's be honest, when we read through the book of Romans, sometimes it's hard for us still now today to really understand what are you talking about, Paul? It's hard to grasp all that Paul is conveying. If you've read it and we'll read a part of that today, it's the language and the way he uses the words, it's really beyond our understanding. At least for me, you all may have five PhDs that you, that you understand it. And you know, when Paul would write, and he, or sometimes he would dictate you know, his letters to somebody who was writing down, these letters uh, would then uh, be handed, um, hand-delivered to whoever it was for, right? He would, he would write, they would seal it up or roll it up or whatever, and somebody would take it to the church, to the church leader who was supposed to receive it. And sometimes that was for miles uh, or even days at sea on ship through the storm. In this case, in this letter, it was taken to the Christians in Rome. And the person carrying it, the person carrying this letter, they had to be very careful. This is the only copy, right? Not multiple copies. This wasn't the day of Xerox machines or, or you can just text it or message it and it's on the cloud. They had to be very careful. This is the only handwritten copy. And remember, this is the letter to the Romans. Roman government, they were the ones that slaughtered Christians by the masses. They slaughtered Christians. It was for sport that they threw Christians in the Colosseum just to be torn up by beasts. Whoever was carrying this letter to Rome had to be very careful, and they had to be very trustworthy, a trustworthy person. They, were, they had to be willing to risk their lives to preserve this letter at all costs. They had to preserve this letter at all costs. And not only that, not only did they have to hand deliver it, they had to understand what Paul was teaching. They had to understand what he was teaching, what he was trying to convey to the, the recipient. Because this person wasn't just delivering the letter to your mailbox or dropping on your doorstep like Amazon does or UPS does. They weren't just leaving it there and then my job's done. No, when they reached the recipient, this person delivering it would open up the letter and open up the scroll and they would then read it to the believers there. They would read it, and they were responsible for conveying the content of that letter to those people. Now, Paul's letter to the Romans is considered as the most important letter that we have from Paul, the most important letter that Paul wrote. Can anyone guess who Apostle Paul entrusted this letter to be delivered by? Who gave it to to deliver it? Somebody said Timothy? Some, another Timothy? Anybody else? Any other characters? Throw them out. Who would? Luke is one. Okay. Steve's got somebody on his mind. It wasn't Timothy. It wasn't Luke. 
It was, I'll give you a hint, it was a woman. Lydia. Not Lydia, but good guess. It was a woman named Phoebe. Phoebe. Can you imagine that? The most, in that day and age, the most important letter Paul wrote, possibly the most important book that we have in the Bible, it was entrusted to a woman in that day and age. Now, some of the women in here need to say hallelujah. Thank the Lord, right? That is a major um, compliment to this woman. Phoebe would convey this letter. And, it, and it's difficult. It's a difficult letter to communicate. It's a difficult letter to convey. Because we really, we all love sermons that talk to us about God's love. We love that. We love hearing the sermons. They feel good. We love it when sermons talk about God's forgiveness and they talk about the power and the power to heal and the power to save. And those are all true. But those are what I like to call popular Christianity sermons. Popular Christian sermons because they're very popular. We love to hear those. Even a non-Christian loves to hear about those types of things, love and forgiveness and healing and, and power to save. The masses love these. They're popular. But once you start delivering a message about God's wrath, once you start delivering a message about what God hates, which is actually how chapter one, the start of the letter starts, I'll read through the chapter immediately after his introduction, Paul starts talking about God's wrath. Once you start delivering a message about sin, and you see the strong language that Paul uses. He's using the language of commanding army general. He's not messing around. He's commanding things. He's arguing like a lawyer, like an attorney of the highest caliber. He says, stop sinning. Stop it. And he starts talking about your wretchedness. He starts talking about a lifestyle that's unacceptable. And you need to change. Those are really unpopular messages to deliver. And to receive it, a letter of that authority in those days from a woman. That's tough. That's tough for the recipient. In those days, women had no rights. They had no status. And Paul entrusted this to a woman. They'd say, I'd rather read one of John's letters, you know, the apostle of love. I, that feels way better to talk about, right? Because I love the love of God, but I don't want to change. Paul's talking about saying, I need to make a change. I need to change something. And we start having this battle in our own minds. We start having a bit of an internal civil war between our hearts and our minds. Yes, I love Jesus, but do I really have to stop doing X, Y, and Z? Won't his grace cover it? Won't his grace cover me even if I don't stop doing X, Y, and Z? His love is a free gift, right? Isn't salvation free? But Romans is a different type of letter. It's a tough, unpopular letter. It's hard to swallow. But the Apostle Paul, he wasn't ashamed. He wasn't ashamed to tell the people the entire story, the entire story of the gospel, no matter how popular the complete subject matter was. He wouldn't just, of course, he would absolutely talk about the love of Christ, but he also talks about your sin because he knew the power of the entire story. Repeat this after me. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's say that again together. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. One last time, third time. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I would highly recommend memorizing this verse and making it a mantra in your life. Sing it, chant it, print it out, hang it up. Resolve to becoming completely unashamed of the entire gospel, no matter how tough it is, no matter how tough it is. Paul was unashamed to tell the whole story. And the book of Romans is really the gospel according to Paul, the gospel according to Paul. Memorize that scripture. Get it in your heart. Get it in your mind so that when, when times approach you and, and confront you, you'll know what you're not ashamed of. It'll change your life. Now let's dive a little deeper into the sample, into just a small sample of Paul's touch, uh, tough teaching in, in, in Romans chapter 6. I'll read verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is freed from sin. Now remember, Paul has a brilliant mind. He's coming at this like a lawyer. He knows people are going to argue with him as much as they want, and they will continue to argue with them because they want to continue doing what they do. They want to continue living as they live, doing what they want, including sin, because they don't want to change, and they just want to continue enjoying the love of God without the change that it requires. Does that sound familiar? Have you ever talked to somebody like this? People who love Jesus but keep making excuses for living in a certain way. You might have someone on your mind, or maybe it's you. So Apostle Paul uses an illustration of baptism, of water baptism. Remember back then, baptism was connected with confessing Jesus as your Lord. You were almost immediately baptized as soon as possible, and you were immersed in the water when you confessed Jesus as Lord. If somebody confessed, they'd say, where's the nearest body of water that we can baptize you? Actually, before you could be part of the church, you had to be baptized in those days. Baptism is your public declaration that I have decided to follow Jesus. Some of you may know that song that we sing uh, sometimes. And through baptism, a Christian came to a decision that they would cut their life into two parts at baptism. There was before Christ, and then there was after Christ. Now their life has been cut into two. Their decision to follow Jesus uh, and to be baptized is what divided their life into two parts. 
And it was a decision that often meant that they had to tear their, themselves away from their roots. It often meant that they had to tear their, themselves away from their family who didn't believe. That they had to tear themselves away and cut themselves off often, or maybe they were cut off from their family because of their faith. And baptism is a demonstration of the beginning of life all over again. That life has started again, rebirth. And the most common practice, water baptism, was by total immersion, meaning that you were completely submerged uh, into the water. Being immersed into the water symbolized your dying and then going into the grave when you go under, right? And emerging from the water then uh, means that you were rising again. That's what it symbolizes. Dying to the old life of sin and then rose, rising again to the new life in grace. And that total immersion, being completely submerged, represented, was symbolic of something very important. Every part of your person would be touched by water when you're totally submerged. Every part of your person. In fact, in some cases, um, uh, a Jew would cut their hair, they would cut their nails, and they would remove their clothing, and they would get into the water to make sure every part of themselves was touched by the water. Every part of your body Every part of your life touched by the power and the grace of God. Every part of you forgiven of your sin and not just changed, but made new. That's what the immersion represented. In fact, when Christians would be baptized, when people would declare their faith, they would consider every single part of them as new. Everything was new. They were, they were literally treated as a new child or as a new person. Sometimes that meant that they would change their name once they were baptized. Uh, some uh, who, who had children before they were baptized and then would have children after they were baptized, they would call their new child as their first child. That's how new, that was the perspective that was given when they were baptized, that they are a brand new person because they have become a different person, completely new, not the same, completely different. Nothing about you and what you... Uh, would do was the same as the before. Your life was cut into two. Now I'm new. You know, when I was 13, I was uh, prompted a couple times to get baptized. Um, some, you know, my parents were in the church and by other church leaders, they had asked me, um, you know, we have a baptism coming up. Santosh, do you think, you know, you're interested in, in obeying God in water baptism. And I knew that it was something I should probably do and probably would eventually uh, do. And it's something I even wanted to do. And I knew it was the right decision because everybody expects, you know, I grew up as a missionary's kid, a pastor's kid. Everybody expects the pastor's kid, <laughs> the missionary kid to be baptized, right? Uh, but something in me at that time said no to two opportunities. I, I just didn't, I, I don't know what it was. I, Actually, I do know it was. It was my flesh. Uh, even at that age, it was my rebellion. I didn't want to be baptized at that time. I mean, I wanted to be baptized eventually, but then I also wanted to kind of live the way I wanted to, right? I think a part of me still wanted to enjoy my life, if that makes sense. If everything inside you is new, I kind of wanted to be who I was at that moment, you know, I, I wasn't done being who I was. I wanted to say whatever I wanted to in junior high school, right? I wanted to use words Christians don't typically use. You get what I'm saying? I wanted to continue acting a fool, whatever I was doing, whatever I was doing. 
And on the other hand, I also enjoyed church because I was part of the church. I enjoyed being part of the community. I liked the feeling that I felt during worship. I liked the feelings and things that I felt during a good message, right? I wanted the feeling of Christ on the inside, but I wanted to live how I wanted to on the outside. I wanted Jesus in the secret places, and I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do in the marketplace. It was this, really this civil war inside of me. And maybe some of you have gone through what I'm describing, where you want Jesus in private, or I have wanted him in private, but it didn't show in public. And finally, when I said yes to getting baptized, it was a good service. I enjoyed it. I remember it vividly. But nothing especially changed right away. Nothing changed immediately. I didn't change my name or anything like that, but still God began to work in me. Because just weeks later, the Holy Spirit anointed me as a worship leader. And it was the Holy Spirit. And I don't say that lightly. I understand the weight of what I'm saying and what that means. And maybe I'll share that story, my experience in the one night um, of uh, God's anointing falling on me. But it's really when you take that step of faith to obey God, he is ready to change your life. When you take a step to stop sinning and you take a step to start practicing the ways of God, that he will regenerate you completely and he'll give you a new life. He'll give you a new purpose. And I want to encourage and suggest to those of you or those of us in the room or online who haven't been baptized yet, I want to suggest that you make that decision, that you make a decision to be baptized. As uh, Pastor Russ says, we have a baptism plan for Sunday, October 8th. Make that decision. Make that decision. Take that step. Because it's more than just to, the need to stop sinning, right? It's more than dying to your sin. Dying to your old self and to your old habits are good, sure. Those are good things. But truly living is more than just changing your habits. It's more than just changing your morals. It's more than just changing your ethics. Truly living means you truly start to live in Christ. In Christ. Now, in Christ, what does that mean? What does it mean to live in Christ? A great scholar uh, said this. We cannot live our physical life unless we are in air. And the air in us. It is so with Christ. We cannot live our physical life unless we are in air, and air is in us. It is so with Christ. That means unless we are in Christ and Christ in us, we cannot live the life God wants us to live. We can't. See, Christianity is not just uh, an emotional experience, or it's not just a feeling. It's not just something mystical. It's not just something spiritual that you feel in a church service maybe. Christianity is a way of life. It's a way of life. And there comes a point in your life where the spiritual experience that you've had, which are wonderful, we have wonderful experiences here that are emotional, that are spiritual, that are mystical, but there comes a point where that spiritual experience has to translate into action. It has to move into action. And really, it has to move more into into more than action. When you experience... uh, uh, Um, God, and when you have an action in your heart, that translates you from being a witness, from just witnessing, to just seeing what God God and Christ has done, to being a weapon. 
you move from being a witness to a weapon for Christ. I'll tell you what, I really enjoy watching or let's say witnessing musicians play their instruments. I love going to a show. I love uh, watching and, and just participating in a concert. It's fun and I love it. But man, it's nothing like being able to play an instrument and playing with a band and playing with a team. It's nothing like that for me personally. You will love watching God move in people's lives. You will. We all do. We love to see that. But it is life-changing and life-giving when God uses you to pray and God uses you to touch others and God uses you to help. God uses you to give and become an instrument and you become a weapon in his hands. You become a weapon of righteousness. You become a, re a weapon of goodness. God is looking for those who would be a weapon in his hands. He's looking for somebody who will be a weapon in his hands. And it's interesting because sin is looking for the same thing. Sin is looking for the same thing. Sin is looking to make you a weapon too. If you're not a weapon in God's hands, you might be a weapon for sin. You might be a weapon for sin. That is really what Paul is talking about in these passages. That's really what he's saying here. Because you cut your life into two parts. Your life was about sin, and, and sin will eventually lead to sin. Sin leads to sin. You know, the first time you do something wrong, uh, something that you're not supposed to do, we may do it with a little hesitation. We may do it with a little fear the first time. We do it with a conscience, right? We have a conscience. All of us are born with a conscience. And someone once described the conscience as being like a pyramid, a pyramid, a pyramid or prism that's in your heart, all right? Small uh, little prism, and maybe all three edges of this pyramid would be sharp blades, sharp blades that are just sitting in your heart. And when you do something that you're not supposed to do, this pyramid will turn just a little bit. And you'll feel it. You'll feel it in your conscience. It cuts you. And maybe you feel bad about what you did, right, that first time. And the second time, it moves a little more. And the third time, and the more you do it, it moves a little more. And what happens is the sharp prism the more you do something, it begins to spin. It begins to spin, and two things happen. It starts to cut out this hole in your heart. It starts to cut out this hole in your heart. That's the first thing that happens. And the second thing that happens is that the blades on it become more dull. They become more dull, and soon it's just moving, and you're not even feeling it. Till the more you sin and the more you do something wrong, you ultimately don't care anymore. You indulge yourself. You don't feel like it's wrong anymore, right? And sin begins to reign more and more in your heart. And sin, because it's reigning in your heart, it's now taken the rightful place of Christ, who should reign in your heart. And Paul finishes this section with an army metaphor from a general's perspective. He says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ, Jesus our Lord. Actually, a quite more literal translation would read like this. Sin's pay is death. Sin's pay is death. But God's free gift is eternal life. Okay? The word he uses for pay, sin's pay is death. The word he uses for pay is that of a soldier who has served, 
a soldier who has worked and has risked his life, has sweat and, and risked his life, and a soldier that has earned his pay. He's earned his dues, right? And no one can take those dues from him. He's earned it. He's served. Sin's pay is death. Sin has earned death. And then the word gift that's used, but God's free gift is eternal life. The word gift that's used is something that you can't earn. You can't earn it. Often during an emperor's birthday, like a Roman emperor, the general, so to speak, he would feel very generous on his birthday. The emperor has everything. What are you going to give him on his birthday? He, but he would feel generous. He would feel like celebrating. And he would feel like, I want to do something on my birthday. And um, he would say, let's give a gift of money to everybody in the army. To everybody in the army. Nobody in the army earned this. They didn't work hard for this. It was just given to them. It was a present from the, from the emperor's kindness, from his graciousness. So Paul says, if we got the pay that we earned, if, we, if you get the pay that you're due, it would be death. It would be death. That's what you've worked for all, all this time. It would be death. But what we have received is a free gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We have earned death. But out of his grace, God has given us life. He's given us life. And yes, <laughs> thank you, Jesus. You know, I feel when you read that famous verse, you feel like, I'll never sin again. I'm, I'm victorious. Hallelujah. But the reality is that when we leave here, we still may struggle and wrestle with this. We still will struggle and wrestle with this. Paul did. Paul struggled with this. Let me read from Romans 7, starting in 14, seven verses. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, for I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. But now, no longer, I am the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. It's a, it's a very um, interesting passage. It's a very deep passage. Paul is really here. He's bearing his soul. He's bearing his struggle. And he's not just bearing his soul and his struggle. He's talking about a human struggle, a human problem, a human situation. He knows, just like us, he knew what was right, and he wanted to do what was right, and yet somehow he could never do it. He just couldn't do what was right. He's telling us the experience of the human situation. He knew that he was wrong. The last thing he wanted to do was to do that wrong thing, and yet somehow he still ended up doing it. He felt as though he had split personalities right? It's as if two men were inside this one skin. He felt pulled in two different directions. And Paul was really saying he became this walking civil war, this internal civil war inside of him. He became haunted by this feeling of frustration. And when he, you can feel it when you're reading his writing. He's frustrated. He's haunted by the ability. He can see what is good, 
but he's still unable to do what is good. He can see what the right thing is, but somehow he still ends up doing what is wrong. You know, before I go to bed, I know I shouldn't eat dairy. I know that in my mind, I know, and my body knows this. But man, I love a bowl of ice cream, and I love maybe a bowl of cereal just before I go to bed. I know I won't sleep well. I know it'll affect me, and I know that if I don't eat that bowl, uh, that dairy, that I will sleep well, and I'll be uh, you know, ready to wake up and be fresh the next day. We, this, is the, this is a superficial example of that struggle, but you understand what I'm saying. That's a superficial example, but inside every person is a battle. Inside every person is a battle, this civil war that's going on. There's this one side which responds positively, which responds to the call of Christ. Yes, Lord. We say, yes, Lord, on Sunday. And then there's another nature which will often answer seduction and the temptation of sin. It's part of the human situation that we know what's right, but we do what's wrong. We are really never as good as we should be. I know that I should pray more but let me watch one more video. I know that I should read my Bible, but let me sleep a little longer. This really demonstrates our human limitation. It demonstrates that we are limited. Knowledge of what is right and, and wrong, knowing what's right and wrong, it's not enough. Knowing what's right and wrong is not enough. If I knew the right thing to do and I did it, then life would be easy, right? If I have the knowledge of what is right, how to live right, and I do it, that's easy. But knowing the right thing doesn't make you good. Just knowing the right thing doesn't make you good. I may know exactly how to play football, right? I may know all the rules and all the violations and everything about it. I may know exactly how football should be played, but that is far from me being good at playing football, right? I may know how to make a cake. I may know the recipe, I may, have, I may know how it should taste, but that's far from me being able to make it, from being good at making that cake. We may know how we should behave in a situation, but that's far from us being good at behaving in a situation, right? Remember, Paul is brilliant. He's on a total different level. He has so much knowledge. He knows. He knows knowledge on top of knowledge on top of knowledge, degrees upon degrees, books of the Bible that he memorized as a Jewish boy, and as academics as he learned as a Roman citizen. He knew the law. He knew his rights as a citizen. He knew everything there is to know, plus years of revelation and teaching with the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And still, Paul is expressing Knowledge isn't enough. Knowing what is right isn't enough. Knowledge doesn't make you good. And that's really the difference between Christianity and morality. That's the difference between a person who calls themselves a Christian and a person who has good morals, right? Because morality is the knowledge of what to do. It's the knowledge of what to do. That's morality. Christianity is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Morality is the knowledge of a moral code, right? We know do not murder, do not steal, and and so on. 
we, we know the moral code. But Christianity is the knowledge of a person. And it's only when we know Christ, it's only when we know Jesus, that we are able to do what we know we should do. It's only with, his, with a relationship with him. You know, we, it's like we become like doctors, like Dr. Luke. You know, we become like doctors who can diagnose a disease but are powerless to prescribe a cure for that disease. We don't know what the cure is. We don't know how to fix. We may know what's wrong, but we have no way within us. We have no power within us to fix it. Jesus is the one person who will not only show you what's wrong, and he will show you. He'll show you what's wrong, but he will also make that wrong into a right. He's the only person he can do that. He will show you and he will tell you. He knows what's wrong with you. And he's the only person that can make that wrong into a right. Jesus doesn't just, he doesn't offer criticism. He doesn't offer, this is what you should do. But he offers his personal help. His personal help to get you out of sin and to deliver you from that. Let's pray. Father, we are not ashamed of the entire gospel. We're not ashamed. We admit that we have been slaves to sin. We've been slaves, Lord. We've been digging ourselves into a grave. We've been destined for hell until you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to get in that grave with us, to lift us out. Thank you, Jesus. It's by his power that we are saved. Help us to turn that belief. Help us to turn that, that knowledge and sense of gratitude into action. Lord God, would you repair us and heal us. Lord, heal our hearts. Make us new. Forge us into weapons for your kingdom. And help us to know you as our risen Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we have some discussion questions as we break it into groups, and I'll share those with you. Um, yeah, actually, uh, I'll add a question. Maybe if you have time, you can talk about uh, first, why is talking about sin, why is talking about sin a key part of the gospel? Paul talked about it often, and Paul addressed it often. Why is that a key part to explaining the gospel? And then you can go into, why should a Christian be baptized? Why should a Christian be baptized? And maybe you share about your own baptism experience, okay? And finally, you can share a time when knowing the right thing to do wasn't enough, and you really needed God's help. All right, share a time when you knew what the right thing to do was, but... It just wasn't enough. Knowing wasn't enough. You needed God to intervene. You needed his help. All right. God bless you and enjoy your discussion time.